0: We're still in our Psalm series over the summer called Say It to God, and today we're going to be having a look at Psalm 51. Tristan, our uh, rising generation pastor, really excited, he's got a really inspiring word for us this morning uh, on Psalm 51, so look forward to, to hearing that. But before that, Mike's going to come and read to us from Scripture.
1: So the reading is from Psalm 51. Uh, verse 1 to 12, and it is on page 573 of the Church Bibles. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Um, Great to see you guys, and forgive me for just faffing with this... uh thing. Um, I actually want to start today by just telling you about one of my most embarrassing moments. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. <laughs> Tom thought it would be a good idea. <laughs> okay, so picture the scene. It's December 2002. I'm 17. Um, I'm about to have the uh, last um, of my university interviews, the most gruelling one and this time it's with the college principal. Now, things don't get off to a very good start. I've been waiting in the corridor for a long time. I mentioned it's December, right, so I've got my coat on. She opens the door. First words, she says, are you going to take your coat off then? Like, yes, yes. So I'm already on the back foot. I go in and I'm invited to sit down this very, very nice sort of wood-paneled study. And then she just gets straight into it and asks her first question. So, why Homerton? Why did I apply to her college? I felt I couldn't tell her the truth, which is that a friend had told me it had 80% girls. (laughs) I have to say, of course, none of them was a shade on my wife Laura, whom I was to meet (laughs) 10 years later. So I couldn't say that. So I said the, the second true thing, which was that I'd heard that there were uh, a really large Christian union. Wrong answer. She was like, oh, the Christian union. Hmm. And she went on this rant about how could she, uh, as an atheist, run a non-denominational college with Christians who didn't want to worship with Muslims. And it was going on and on. And I just said something like, um, well, you know, the thing is, I think we're all sinners. She glares at me. (laughs) And I'm looking at her. She had these sort of really large, imposing hands. Um, She's actually an archaeologist, so having large hands (laughs) might be quite useful for digging. (laughs) But I didn't know that at the time. So... I say, well, you know, I think we're all sinners. And then I realized I've said something that I possibly shouldn't have implied. So I just keep digging, right? Not with the big hands that she has. (laughs) And she said, so you think I'm a sinner? I said, well, I'm sure you're a very nice person. (laughs) Tristan, you think I'm a sinner, don't you? (laughs) Well, yes, I said. (laughs) But so am I. And then it starts to sink in. I, I've called you know, the principal of the college a sinner. And the interview didn't last very much longer. She said, said have, a, have a nice look at Cambridge, won't you, on your way out? And uh, the thing is that none of us likes to hear that. None of us likes thinking we're sinners, do we? But friends, we are all sinners. We have to own that. There's only been one man without sin, Jesus Christ. And the good news is that thanks to him, we can all be forgiven. But first, we have to fess up to the offensive truth, that we offend against God and against our neighbour. So over the last four weeks, we've been going through this series, uh, looking at David's Psalms. These are the songs that were Jesus' prayer book. And we've been seeing how we can pray to God in all manner of circumstances. When we need help, when we feel forsaken, when we're afraid. But now I think we come to the really difficult one. You know, because objects of fear, like the spiders Martiana talked about last week, they're sort of external enemies. And most of us probably don't feel like we lose anything by calling out for help for that. Now I certainly can't deal with spiders That's Laura's job. Just wish he wouldn't go to such lengths to let them live. But when it comes to asking for forgiveness, well, we have to deal with the fact that we are the enemy of God. The enemy is within. It's not shouting at the storm, it's having to confront this truth. We are the enemy of God. We've sinned and fallen short. We need forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but I find that pretty hard because I I don't like to think I'm a bad person. But I am. So, where can I find forgiveness? Because I'm a sinner. And all the heroes of faith were sinners. But the great news is that just as they were forgiven, you can be forgiven and I can be forgiven because of God's unfailing love, which David opens his psalm proclaiming. So as we go deeper into this psalm, do have it open so you know I'm not just making it up, we're going to see how to pray when we need forgiveness. And we're going to see that we're called to recognise the truth, to repent, and then how we can rejoice. And along the way, we're going to have to dispel some lies that the enemy, Satan, tells us. But before we go into the psalm, in itself, I think it's actually useful to recap its context. So we've been used to David on the run, the innocent victim, haven't we? We've seen David the brave shepherd fighting lions, David the faithful warrior defeating Goliath. But this is about David, the king who sinned. And so, as you remember, he sinned in a pretty big way. As Leonard Cohen put it, your faith is strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. In Second Samuel, we read how King David sees this woman, Bathsheba, bathing on the roof, and is immediately overtaken with desire. You know, he has to have her. So that first sin, you know, he objectifies women for getting her dignity, made in the image of God as being of equal importance with men. He hadn't obviously seen Barbie. <laughs> Neither have I. I went to see Oppenheimer instead. Yeah. But anyway, David has this lust for her, and so he has Bathsheba brought to him, sleeps with her. I mean, straight away, that's an abuse of power, right? This poor woman could hardly refuse to sleep with the king. But then David realizes, "Oops, husband." Husband, Uriah, he, he's fighting in the war for me. Yeah. What if she's pregnant? I know. So he calls Uriah back. He's like, "Go, go home. You know, have a nice time with your wife." But Uriah refuses. You know, he's like, "I, I can't possibly do this. Not when the men are fighting really hard." So he sort of sleeps outside. He's like, oh, yeah. So he gets him drunk. Tries again. Go home to your wife. Have a nice time. Uriah doesn't. So now you made it awkward, right? What he does, he writes to his general, asks for Uriah to be put on the front line so that he can be killed in battle. And he is. Brilliant. Problem solved, right? So he marries Bathsheba. And he thinks he's got away with it. Then God sends his prophet Nathan to him. And this prophet starts by telling David a story. He says, King, there's this rich guy in your kingdom, and he's got bare amounts of sheep. And there's this other guy, and he's only got one sheep. He's really poor. And do you know what? The rich guy took the the poor man's only sheep and cooked it for some sort of barbie. And King David says, oh my gosh, what a guy. That guy... He deserves to die. And Nathan's like, "Yeah, you are that man. You are the man," for the most cutting words in the Old Testament. And David's filled with remorse. But you know, remorse can't come when we've been hoodwinked by lies. The first thing that David has to do, and that we have to do, is to recognize the truth of our position. And the truth is twofold. You see, the enemy tells us two lies at this stage. Firstly, he says, there is no sin. David, you know, his king kind of had a right to do as he pleased regarding his subjects, right? Wrong. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I, I sort of hear this sibilant whisper, like, it's not really wrong when I'm going to sin. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies in John 8. He was a, he was a liar from the beginning, way back in Genesis 3, you know, when he tells Eve she won't really die if she eats the forbidden fruit. And so if the lie is that there is no sin, we must recognize the truth. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Second lie, God's mean if he punishes me. No. The truth is, we fully deserve God's wrath and damnation. If we didn't, there could be no mercy, because mercy is letting someone off the punishment they deserve. And there could be no grace, because grace is going a step further and giving them something good they could never deserve. Forgiveness doesn't downplay wrongdoing. Look, Uh, verses 3 to 4. David shows the proper attitude, recognizes, confesses his sin, and he recognizes and confesses God's right to judge him. Without this, we can't proceed. But I wonder, how many of us have a tendency to downplay either our affront or get a bit upset when others are rightly angry at us? You know, you might be thinking, well, I've not committed murder or adultery. I'm nothing compared to David. And I kind of hope you are able to say that you've not committed murder. But have you in your heart? Because I have. Get real with God. Don't believe the lie. A few years ago... Um, I was in the Lake District and I, I drove Laura's car onto a very narrow flint bridge, and it resulted in a big scrape. I don't actually know why I'm reminding her of this. <laughs> now I think about it, it's kind of stupid. I did apologise to her, and I was trying to explain how, truthfully, I was being hemmed in. You know, there's a car right in front of me, another one um, behind me. I'd driven. I was just following the sat nav, and you know, you get in, and, and then. Um, it was a blind corner, and I've committed, and there's a sconch. But honestly, I didn't think it was a big deal. You know, the car already had a bunch of scratches on it, didn't it? Let's be honest. <laughs> not for me. So it's, like, it's purely cosmetic. And the thing is, that I'm not precious about my car, probably because of my driving. I have got better. I was sort of surprised that Laura was upset about it. But friends, we need to pray for courage to own up to our wrongdoing and recognize the offended party has the right to be offended and to be justified in their anger. Verse 4, you are right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge. And because God is perfect, we know his uh, uh, his judgments are just. But here in this psalm, do you notice how... David doesn't list his transgressions. He just says, I know them. My sin is ever before me. It might be appropriate for you to list your sins to God. Here David doesn't need to say it, but let's just outline how heinous this series of sins was. So we've got abuse of kingly power, giving in to lust, breaking the tenth commandment in coveting his neighbor's wife, breaking the seventh commandment in committing adultery, which according to One of my year 10 pupils last year is that thing what adults do. If that weren't enough, he goes and breaks the sixth commandment and has the bloke murdered. Your sins, I'm sure, will not be as bad as that. Hopefully mine aren't either, but I have been DBS checked, so definitely no murders there. We have to get real with God. Okay. Okay. So, we've recognised our position, and God's position. What's next? Repentance. This, of course, comes out of remorse. But what is repentance? Well, it's not, as one GCSE candidate once wrote, when you keep repeating what you've done wrong. It's the very opposite. The Greek word metanoia means to do a U-turn, to turn around. But here, friends, we are again met with two great lies of the enemy. Firstly, we're told that you can atone for your sins. In fact, there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to go through to redeem yourself. Secondly, and sort of on the flip side, that there's nothing you can possibly do to be forgiven. That is actually true. But here's a lie. You're beyond forgiveness. Let's see how David responds. Verses 7 to 9 and verse 16 dispel these two lies. David knows whom he must turn to to be washed of his sin. Not his own works, but God himself. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Blot out all my iniquity. This phase of blotting out we saw, of course, is in the first verse where he says blot out my transgressions. The Hebrew word means to wipe out entirely. But I like the word blot because it contains the greatest theological truth about forgiveness. God doesn't wave a wand over our sin and kind of make it disappear like an illusionist. No, he goes to work on our sins, taking them into himself on the cross. I like using a fountain pen. Right? But you know the thing about fountain pens is that they are easily spilling ink onto your paper and uh, you have to take out a tissue and then you, you blot it out, right? But what happens? Stain is transferred onto the blotting paper wiping the pen or page clean. So when we read here, David pleading for God to blot out his sins. We see that it must be God, not the blood of goats, who will ultimately bear this stain, this sin. And yet, friends, here's the incredible thing, the truly good news, God delights to forgive us. In Isaiah 43:25, I am he who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake, I will not remember your sins. How does he do this? On the cross of Golgotha, we sang about this earlier. That wonderful lyric, you know, on the cross, sins are forgiven. St. Paul writes to the Corinthians: God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The blotting paper. You see, our stain is put on God. And so David's prayer is answered a thousand years later by the crucified one. But friends, we've got to watch out for that first line. The instinct to sacrifice, the thing that we can earn forgiveness is so ingrained in us. What does David say? Verse 16. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What David sees, what we need to see is that God requires a sacrifice of the heart. We can't earn forgiveness. It's a free gift of a good God who could and should damn us, but instead spreads his love out in his arms for us on the cross. Some of you may remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the boy used to scrub has been turned into a dragon through enchantment. And he gets to this point where he's going to be left alone on an island and, well, you know, dragons are difficult to feed and there isn't a large enough berth to sleep in and he he can't fly all the way. And so what happens is the great lion, Aslan, appears to him and tells him to undress. And Eustace realises that what he has to do is tear his dragon skin away. So he digs his dragon claws in and, and tears off a layer. But it's only one layer of skin. There's layer after layer. Three times he tries. He can't get deep enough. Giving his testimony a little later, Eustace tells his friends, As soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. You will have to let me undress you, said the lion. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you... But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. We have to let Jesus in to our lives to tear out our sin. And it will hurt, but it's so worth it. We can't do this alone. We can't be addictions by ourselves. We can't turn our own ways to him without him. And you might think you don't have addictions or sinful habits that you need to break. You know, it might not be drugs or alcohol or pornography. It might be gossiping or social media or harboring resentment. Whatever it is, let Jesus in to tear it out. Lay your sin at the cross. Invite the Lord to work in you, to blot out your sin you might find it helpful to go back to verses 7 and 9 of this psalm and pray them over. So your sins are blotted out. And you didn't do it yourself. That's brilliant. Of course, it doesn't mean you should go and sin again. The second lie in this stage, that you can be beyond forgiveness, is to limit God. No one, but no one is beyond God's grace. Not even a Hitler. And this week, and you know, every week in the news, we, we read some pretty terrible stories of some people who have done some really terrible things. But none of these people is beyond God's unfailing love. Verse 1 again. So if you're thinking, I just can't confess my sin. it's too much. God couldn't possibly forgive me. You know, Maybe the alcoholic, maybe the adulterer, maybe the liar. But not me. No, the the God who delighted to forgive David and delighted to die for him, delights to forgive you, to forgive me. And this brings us to the the stage of renewal where we can finally, as with David, rejoice. Verses 10 to 15 are so full of praise, aren't they, in the psalm. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. We rejoice because we accept renewal. Seek to repair what we broke, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. And we rejoice that we are restored to a relationship with God. But, again, the enemy will tell us two lies. Firstly, that you have to go it alone. And secondly, that you will always be that guy. That there cannot be any renewal. To answer the first lie... Go back to verse 11. This is what David's prayer is here. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David was blessed. God's Spirit came on him when he was anointed king. But as he was, you know, living in the age before Christ, the Holy Spirit didn't live inside him in the way that it lives in every Christian today. We're so so privileged in this age, the age of the church, to be filled with the Holy Spirit the ancient word for the Holy Spirit is paraclete. It means literally someone who walks beside you. Jesus promised this in John fourteen sixteen that the Father would send us the paraclete or the advocate, the Holy Spirit who would help us and be with us forever. The translation of advocate in the NIV is, I think, quite useful because it has this a sort of opposite connotation of the accuser. Satan is the accuser, the prosecutor in court. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, our defence. The Holy Spirit, sure, he convicts us of sin. We have to recognise that. But the Spirit doesn't hold sin against us. He just wants us to turn to Christ. So friends, you, you don't have to walk alone because once we invite the Spirit in, he will fulfil that promise um, and that pleading that that david asked for in verse 12 a willing spirit to sustain me so finally we're made new if anyone is in christ he's a new creation the old is gone the new has come you're the man you are the man david was told he was that man god has blotted his sin out god has blotted your sin out and my sin out On the cross, you are not the same person again. You won't always be that guy. (laughs) What wonderful news. What a wonderful truth. Friends, don't believe the enemy's lie. It's Satan who says, you will always be that guy. But God says to you, no, you were that guy. Now I've made you new. Your forgiveness is not going to be taken away. Because it's unconditional. Because it's nailed to the cross. You see, Eustace's testimony doesn't end with the pain of the dragon skin being torn off by Aslan. He begins to take pleasure in the feeling of the dragon scales peeling off. You know, said Eustace, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, like it hurts like billy-ho, but oh, it's such fun to see it coming off. Yeah, uh, I'm not with Eustace on that one either. (laughs) C.S. Lewis had some weird things about scabs, I think. He continues. Azan peeled the beastly stuff right there. Just as I thought, I'd done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt, and there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft as peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. This is a wonderful image of what Christ does when He blots out our sin and casts it on the ground. We are made new. And then we see how unattractive that sin really was. And that's worth rejoicing over, isn't it? So friends, let's pray. Father God, we come today recognizing you for who you are and who we are. So, so sorry that we continue to grieve you. Please won't you come into our lives and tear out our sins. Pour your Holy Spirit on us, that we may walk with you in renewal, for we rejoice and praise you for your unfailing and forgiving love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.